As we will turn to Romans chapter 5. As you're turning there, just a couple comments. Uh, one, so today's message is really dealing with um, some spiritual realities. And for me, at least, at times that can be difficult to get my mind wrapped around because these are things that I cannot see. Uh, and so I cannot always easily relate to them um, as I do other things. So what I'm hoping to attempt to do today is kind of what Jesus did uh, in Mark chapter 2. I don't know if you remember the story. There was a man that was a paralytic that was brought by some friends to Jesus. And Jesus was forgiving, talking about forgiving his sins. And there were some others there who had some questions in their heart about how Jesus was able to do that since only God could forgive sins. And so he, knowing their thoughts, positioned a question to them and said, hey, is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or to tell this man to get up and walk? Uh, naturally, from a human perspective, it is, of course, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can see that, right? Like, like, you say your sins are forgiven, nothing really happens. We don't really know what you did. Sounds good, right? But if I say to you who is a person who's a paralytic, get up and walk, and for you to get up and walk, well, you know, that's a whole other thing, right? And so Jesus said, so that you might know that the Son of Man on earth has the authority to forgive sins. He said, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And so he used a physical illustration to get at a spiritual truth. And so I want to try to do that today is use a a very physical illustration that has nothing to do with what we're talking about uh, as a way to try to get at some spiritual realities to help our minds get around that. So uh, if you have your Bibles, let's look at Romans chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be picking up the, the back half of this. So if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's Word, we're going to pick up at verse 12 and take it to the end of the chapter. So I'll start reading and you can follow along silently in your Bible. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even on those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon our time. Father, I come to you because you are a God who delights in mercy and you desire to help those who are weak and in need of aid. And so I come to you this morning, Father, helpless and in need of your great divine aid. I pray that the name of your son is glorified and magnified today as best as a, a frail human can do. Lord, I thank you for your rich word that you have given us and preserved for us uh, so that we might be able to know uh, what you have done in the world. I do pray, Lord, that in your grace that you would allow your spirit to speak through me, to control my words and thoughts, and to convey them for the good and edification of your people. May you receive all the glory and the honor. I ask for your mercy at this time. And Lord, if there's anything that would keep us from being used or hearing from you today, would you please pardon our sins, iniquities, trespasses, transgressions, Lord, anything that would stand in the way so that we might be of service to you and we might benefit from your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So... Two years ago, my wife and my daughter got into watching some home renovation shows. Um, and uh, occasionally, I would uh, stop to watch a show with them here and uh, there. Uh, one of their favorite shows that they became interested in was called Zombie House Flipping. <laughs> Zombie House Flipping. Uh, Pat was telling me about, reminding me about this other show that, was, that predated that show, and it's kind of like a modern version of This Old House, for some who may remember that show. Uh, if you check their website, this is how they describe their show. When a house has been left for dead, the zombie house flippers bring it back to life. Operating in uh, Pastor Paul's neck of the woods and Pastor James, Orlando, Florida, Justin, Ashley, Keith, and Duke have made a name for themselves flipping rotting, abandoned properties, zombie houses, into beautifully remade homes for top dollar. Now, in each episode, they would generally start off with them purchasing some home that was already dead, generally in a nice community, and it was in a horrible state of decay. Uh, the, the house would have maybe any, any number of issues. Some of the times there were things like the walls were rotting. Uh, perhaps the roof was damaged, the cabinets were stained, junk and garbage sometimes was piled up in every room of the house. There was always overgrown plants and weeds. Swimming pools were filled with murky water, and even on a couple of occasions, there were visitors in the pool called alligators that they had to coax away from the property who had made that home their home since it had uh, been abandoned. 
And then, of course, at the beginning of the show, after making the decision to purchase the home, they would then go to work. They remove all the garbage, tear down all the weeds, take out all the junk, and then they started the hard work of renovating and rebuilding the property. And they usually did it on some new design that one of the team members had come up with this vision for what they thought the property could be, not necessarily confine themselves to simply putting back in what was already there, but they had a new design, a new idea of what this property can be, and they then transformed the property to fit that new picture. And sometimes this would involve all kinds of things. Sometimes it meant that they had to tear down walls. Um, sometimes it meant they had to change the roof structure, roof lining. Sometimes it meant they had to rip out all the plumbing and replace the plumbing or all the electrical wiring in the house. Sometimes it meant even, hey, you know what? They had a swimming pool. We don't want a swimming pool in this new vision. So they would have the entire swimming pool dug up, removed. They would fill it all in, and you'd never know that a swimming pool had ever been part of the property. And one of the things that was true is that it always involved building and installing new items. There was always going to be some new floors, new walls, new landscaping, and on occasion there were new decks that were built. But at the end of the process, when you got to the end of the show, a property that once had been dead had now been made alive. And it had been so radically transformed that it didn't look anything like what it used to be. And now what had been detracting from the value of the community now was adding value to the community. And of course, because it is a show and they're in it to make money, not long after that, it would sell. And they would make a profit, and this new home would become a place that a family now would dwell in. Well, in a similar way in our text today, Paul gives us a quick tour of God's restoration process with humanity. But he does this by shining the light brightly on one figure in humanity, the great restorer, Jesus Christ. If you remember in Romans chapter 4, Paul shared with us how both Jews and Gentiles could receive this blessing of Abraham. And he goes on to tell us that this blessing of Abraham, specifically what he has in mind, despite all the things that God had done for Abraham, was one specific blessing. It was this idea or concept about God accounting righteousness to a person based on faith. And Paul, of course, lays out that, of course, our faith has to be directed to the person and work of Jesus Christ by which righteousness being declared right by God and sins being forgiven can be placed upon our account. And then he, he breaks into chapter 5 and he talks about this hope that we have as a result of peace with God. And Pastor Mike shared that with us last week in the form of talking about these assurances that we have as believers. And Paul says, hey, look, now because we have peace with God based on what Jesus did through his death and because of his resurrection, we have assurance that we will be saved from God's wrath by the fact that Jesus lives and is able to intercede for us. And it's when we come to this back half of chapter 5 that Paul lays out the foundation upon which we can rest in assurance or hope that what we have our hope in is founded on a good thing. And that is the fact that Jesus has conquered the greatest forces that oppose humanity. Here Paul pictures those two things as sin and death. And those things often can rob us of hope in life. And so he's going to do that by reminding us of what the state of the world was like before Jesus 
And then what is the state of affairs after Jesus accomplished his definitive work? Now, you need to go, know going in that this is an extremely difficult text. All of the scholars say that. Let me quote one for you. Dr. Schreiner put it this way. Romans 5, 12 through 21 is one of the most difficult and controversial passages to interpret in all of Pauline literature. One of the reasons it has to do with the many difficult grammatical things that are going on in the text in which there are tons of decisions and there's lack of clarity about what Paul is actually doing and saying. And so there is a ton of stuff in this text that I won't be able to get into today. But what I do want to do in our time is hit what Paul's main focus is in this text, of which scholars all seem to agree of what that is. And Paul's major focus in this text is the superb results of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, in Paul's estimation and in my own, would be that he is the greatest hero in human history, bar none. So to prepare our minds to get ready for what Paul is going to share in this text, we need to travel back in time and just get some clarity on what exactly happened at the beginning. And so we want to revisit some key texts in Genesis and just walk through and let me share a few thoughts because that's what sets us up for what Paul is saying because what Paul is saying is based on what happened in the Genesis account. And to refresh our minds, let's walk back through Genesis to see how things played out. We'll start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. There we find these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So what we see originally is that God had this intentions that humans would rule his creation as his representatives on planet Earth. Then we find in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Here we encounter God giving to the man a direct commandment. Think of it in the same way that Israel received the Ten Commandments. It's that type of command. Which brings us to the relevant part of Genesis chapter 3. A few verses here. Verse 6, first of all. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So we finally see here. Uh, after whatever period, unknown period of time, after the temptation of the serpent, uh, Adam and Eve directly disobey God's command by eating from the tree that God had commanded them not to eat from. Now, 
Paul is not going to speak about Eve at all. He only has focus on the man. Now, there may be some reasons for that, but he's contrasting it, but his focus is solely on the man's responsibility in failing to obey God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. Here's the result of that. And to Adam he said, that being he, being God, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall eat not of it. You should not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plant of the field. That might be us condemned to eat vegetables. Could have been just fruit eaters, but now we got vegetables. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Because Adam disobeyed the direct commandment of God, God judges Adam for his sin, here his transgression. God curses the world as a result because this was the area in which Adam was to reign and rule over, and he condemns Adam to death. And the plan for man to reign as God's representative seems like, at this point, utterly lost. But we don't stop there. Let's go on to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 through 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the, cherub, the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to, to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, in mercy, God has removed the man and woman from direct access to his presence. Remember, in Genesis, there was at least seems to be alluded to this idea where God would come walking in the cool of the evening. They have lost that. In addition to that, they are, they've lost the privilege to have access to the tree of life. In the ancient Near East, this would have represented immortality. And they definitely understood that, that reading this text, that access to immortality has been cut off. And so man is now restricted and limited to live a mortal life subject to death. And all of his children are born with no access to the tree of life. We see this play out in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness and after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he had fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he 
died. And if you were to continue reading through Genesis chapter 5, you're going to notice this phrase repeated over and over again. And he died. God's judgment ultimately, ultimately plays out in human history as what he said comes to pass. Adam, from dust you were taken, and to dust you will return. Adam died, Seth died, Cain died, Abel died, and all of their descendants died. Brings us to, finally, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Adam's sin. Next chapter we see Cain's sin. Adam's descendants' sin. Noah, flood, and the cycle starts all over again. Adam's children prove to be corrupt. It's in, the, in light of these events or with these events that, that, are, that are in the mind of Paul that Paul begins to let us know what the state of the world was before Jesus came. Adam left our house, proverbially speaking, the world and the human race in a disastrous state, like an abandoned property. Notice what he says again in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law and was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of one of the one who was to come. Paul says in this text that Adam let sin and death into the world through his transgression, through his disobedience. Now, the way that Paul writes about sin and death in here is he pictures them as almost two villains uh, who almost have an active personal presence to them who have been led into the world, who have wreaked havoc on the world that God had made. And Adam was the one who opened the door for them to come in. And so death spread to all people. Now, the little word that you see here in the text that is translated as because is a highly debated word. It's one of the many grammatical issues that we find here uh, in the text. And most recently, scholars have kind of, most scholars have landed on that because is probably the best translation in light of looking at some other passages more recently. And people have kind of changed their mind on what is the best way to see this passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, Philippians 3, 12, and 4, 10. And they've kind of shifted in that. And in light of that, the translation then indicates that Adam sinned, and so he died, and people likewise sinned, so we die. Paul gets at this idea, it's because of Adam's sin and our sin that we ultimately die. Over the years, I've had the, the chance, opportunity to attend a number of funerals. Sometimes those were for people who were extremely young in life. Many times were for people who had lived many years of life. Probably most of my funerals that I attended were for those who were on the latter half of life. But one particular, particular funeral that I attended 
left a great impression and has been just kind of seared into my mind. And, and, and just, you know, being a pastor's kid, being, being in ministry, having a large family have, have just put me in a lot of situations. But this particular funeral has just been impressed upon me. So when I was about 21 years old, uh, there was a, a young man that I attended church with. Uh, we had grown up together, attending the same churches. We had attended two of the same churches. Um, and this was kind of when I was about 21. He was getting ready to go off to college, so he's a few years younger than I was. And so it was the summer before uh, he was getting ready to leave. Uh, and he had, because of his academics and stuff like that, he had earned a full scholarship, engineering scholarship, to go to school for engineering. Uh, and it was the summer before that, and he decided that summer that he would spend the summer working. His mom was a single mom, and I think it was uh, three kids in the family, three or four kids in the family. He just wanted to be of assistance to his mother. He was the second oldest uh, and the oldest boy in the family. He just wanted to assist, and so he thought working through the summer to help would be a good thing. And he had just been one of those really good kids. Not saying he's sinless, but just a good kid. You know what I'm talking about? He was respectful. Uh, he was a hard worker, uh, helpful. He was just that kind of guy and had that reputation. That was just how we knew him. And so uh, he was working that summer, and his job had really loved him, and that's why they allowed him to come back and work during the summer. And it was, you know, getting through the summer. And it, he, had, he was working at that time, I think, uh, the second shift. And so it was late one night when he got off from work, somewhere after 1130 at night. And so his mom, his sister, his brother uh, had come to pick him up at the job and to bring him home. So they had to drive across town to get him in Houston. And so they decided that on that way back, it was late, uh, and they figured, hey, the best way to get home, because several of us have to go to work tomorrow, was to get on the freeway and travel back. And so they were on the, the freeway in the far right lane on their way home that night, uh, traveling home. And for whatever reason, uh, there was a, a white truck uh, that was driving at an extremely high speed and driving very erratically. Uh, they didn't see him coming up behind. And sadly, what ended up happening was that as he was driving erratic, he swerved over into their lane and hit their car and then made his way off into the distance. Because of the way that he impacted the car, he pushed it off of the freeway and it tumbled at a high speed down the hill over and over and over again until it slammed into the pavement. Now the windows had been open and he had been sitting by the window and it so happened that his head had been right by the window when it slammed against the ground. Still remember the night when my father got the call as the pastor, 2 a.m. or whatever time it was, when about 2 a.m. was when the police had called and asked him to come out to the hospital to be with the family. He didn't make it. And one of the things that that reminded me of is how sin and death have been so operative in our world and have ruined countless lives. And I'm sure you have your own story. You can stand up here and share about how sin and death have devastated our world. And this is exact reality that Paul is trying to get. And he said, the reason that this happened is because of what Adam did. 
He goes on to address a thought that he raises in 415. Let me show that verse to you. As he's building out this idea, he says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, some may have assumed in light of what he says here in this text, that without the law, then that must have meant there were no transgressions. If no transgressions, then there should not have been death. But Paul says, wait a minute, but wait a minute. Look back. People did die between Adam and Moses. The reason Paul is pointing this out is because he's saying sin was in the world. And we know that sin was in the world and being accounted to people because death was in the world. And death is evidence that sin is always present. Yet Paul draws a contrast here and he says, the people who were sinning then weren't sinning in the exact same way as Adam was. And so it wasn't being counted in the same way Adam's was. Adam had a direct commandment for God, from God, which he violated, which was a transgression. They were sinning, so their sins weren't counted in the same way. But death has always been messing up history because sin has been messing up history. But Paul says, thankfully, the story doesn't end with Adam. And that's where we get to his main point and the next point. And this is his main focus of the text. At the end of verse 14, Paul tells us, it's not just one man, Adam, who's impacted the world. There is another man who's impacted the world as well, but in a very different way. And this other man is Jesus. And what Paul ultimately says here is all that Adam messed up, Jesus more than restores for those with faith in him. We see this in verses 15 through Verse 19, 15 through 19. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment also following the one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all, in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, and by one man's obedience the many will be made righteousness. So Paul draws a contrast here, or a comparison by contrast, using this stark uh, play on the two different sides of how each man has impacted humanity. And the focus here is what each man achieved by what they did. One man got us in, and only one man gets us out. Adam's disobedience affected humanity, and Jesus' obedience affects humanity. 
Jesus' obedience refers here most likely to specifically his obedience through death on the cross, although there are some scholars who believe because of in light of Philippians 2 that this has the whole view of his life. But most likely here, we may be thinking of specifically his one act of obedience through his obedience by fulfilling God's will in dying for us on the cross. Now, notice what Paul does in the text. First, look at all the negative words that he says about what Adam achieved. Look back at verse 15. Many died. Verse 16, condemnation. Verse 17, death reigned. Verse 18, condemnation for all men. And finally, verse 19, many were made sinners. But notice all the positive words that pile up in relationship to Jesus. Verse 15, the grace of God and the gift Verse 16, justification, which here we take as a, a declaration of being declared right before God. Verse 17, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness by which we're able to reign in life. Verse 18, justification and life. And verse 19, the many will be made righteous. Whereas Adam's sin or transgression brought sin and death and condemnation into humanity, Jesus offers us a precious gift that brings grace and righteousness and life and justification. What Paul is getting at here is Jesus not only restores, but fixes up more so than what Adam messed up for those who have faith in him. See, the word that Paul uses in this text that he gets at is this idea, he pictures grace, that it far exceeds the sin of Adam and not only Adam. Think about what Jesus' death actually covers. It covers countless sins for all who received his gift, as verse 17 indicates. Dr. Cranfield put it this way, that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment that is perfectly understandable but that the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift, this is the miracle of miracles, utterly beyond uh, human comprehension. If I were to draw back from our analogy that I used earlier to kind of paint a physical picture of what, of what I'm trying to get at, or I think what Paul is getting at here to think about renovation of imagery, it's the idea that Jesus purchased the property that Adam left decaying. He then cleaned the property up and removed all of the junk and garbage. And then he didn't just renovate the house. He expanded it. He took what had been a four-room house and turned it into a 100-room mansion and set it on a vast estate. That's kind of the idea of picture of grace here. God's kindness toward us is so much greater than any of the sin that we've committed. His grace is abundant. Think about it. Every person since Adam, Jesus is able to cover every sin and misdeed, each one deserving death. And yet his one act covers it all, even for those who haven't been born yet and have not even sinned yet. His blood is able to take care of it if they put faith in him. His grace is greater than any sin. But not only does Jesus restore and deal with the sin, but he restores God's purpose for humanity. Notice in the text what it says. Sin and death both reigned, but Jesus kicked them out, and now grace reigns. And then he goes on to say, we will reign through Jesus Christ. Ultimately, God's purpose will be fulfilled 
through Jesus Christ. In the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus will sit and reign, and Jesus says through him he will allow us, those who have overcome by faith, to reign alongside of him. And God's intended purposes that he stated at the beginning that man should reign over the earth as his representative will be fulfilled through the man, Jesus Christ. See, God, through Jesus, has fixed the problems of sin and death. Jesus' death covers our sin, and by his resurrection, he has made way through death to life. Jesus fixes everything that Adam messes up. Now, this causes us to reflect on the passage because here in this passage, Paul divides all of humanity into two families. You've got Adam's family. And Adam has some gifts for his family, sin, death, and condemnation. And then Jesus has a family, and he has some gifts, righteousness, life, and justification. And the text bid us ask ourselves, whose family are you in? Are you still in Adam's family? Because he's got something for you. Or have you joined Jesus' family by faith? Because he has some wonderful things to give you. That brings me to my last and final point from the text. Jesus fixed what the inspector of the law pointed out. Jesus fixed what the inspector of the law pointed out. Let's look at our final two verses here in the text, verse 20 and verse 21. Now the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As Dr. Kahn states, the Jews saw that the law as a means of escape from the sinful condition brought on by Adam. So one of the popular views was, yeah, hey, look, we understand that Adam messed up the world. But those who are under the law, part of Abraham's family, the law was given so we can get a pass out of that. But Paul has a different view here. He he, he sees things differently. And he says one of the purposes, God had multiple purposes for giving the law, but he says one of the purposes that God gave the law was to act like a home inspector. That the law came to point out the infractions of sin, which ultimately turned sins into transgressions. Remember, transgressions is sinning with knowledge of regulations. And so then the law increased sin. As Dr. Schreiner indicates, Paul was most likely here reflecting on the history of Israel in the Old Testament. That's where the law was given. And after God gave them the law, we know the story. Sin just seemed to get worse and worse and worse until finally God exiled them because of their disobedience. It's kind of like a person walking by a sidewalk with some friends and they see a sign that says, do not walk on the grass. And what immediately rises up in them is the desire now to walk on the grass. But not only do they go walk on the grass, but they run through the grass and they turn flips on the grass. And then they walk off the grass with a sense of satisfaction. You won't rule over me. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's what the law did. It, it, It raised up sin, right, to show it for what it really was. That's what the law did. Point out the problem but it couldn't fix it. So Paul says, when sin increased, grace super increased through Jesus Christ. Jesus did what the law could not do. He fixed the problem. 
And so now grace reigns instead of sin and death because of Jesus. And the evidence that grace has already started to reign is you. Because you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are living a transformed life. And your transformed life is the evidence that the new era has broken in to the old era because of what Jesus has done. Grace is reigning because Jesus fixed the problems that Adam wrought, sin and death. Now, what might be the implication of what Paul shares here for believers? So in our community group, we're going through the book called Saints. Uh, and he's talking about reclaiming this term that's often, most often used to describe believers in the New Testament, more so than the word Christians, that we're pictured as saints or holy ones, right? And that's sometimes hard for us to see ourselves as because, you know, we think of Mother Teresa and we're like, I'm not a saint. Like, that's Mother Teresa. Like, that's for somebody like that, right? But he said, no, all of you, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, saint is describing you, and so one of the things he talked about in this week's chapter that we read was this concept or this idea that because we, when we have faith in Jesus Christ, we have taken off the old man and put on the new man. Now listen to the implications of that, what Paul says to the believers at Colossae. He says this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he gives us some examples, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, all the way. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. Paul says to us in Colossians, Saint, you're no longer part of Adam's family. You're now part of Jesus' family. And there were certain clothes that went with Adam's family. And because you're not in Adam's family anymore, you need to take off the stuff that lets you know that you were in Adam's family. Stop wearing those clothes. Because Jesus has given you some new clothes and they're laying out and you need to put on the new clothes that Jesus has put on. So I ask you, Saint, what clothes of Adam's family are you still wearing? I would encourage you, take them off. They don't look good on you. Put on some new clothes. Because Jesus has new things for you. So I began this message by telling you about this show called Zombie House Flipping. Now, after watching several of the shows and, and sitting down with my wife and daughter, my son, of course, bouncing around the living room, not really paying attention, uh, I noticed that there were some patterns to the shows. One, once the team had decided to buy a house, and they had to kind of agree with this between the four of them, once they decided to buy a house, they were committed to the work. Two, Sometimes as they work through the process of renovations, they encountered problems. And at some points in the show, it even looked like they might want to give up on the house that they were working on. But ultimately, by the end of the show, it would change. Three, at the end of every show, the house was radically different than what they started off with. The house was new. The property was alive again and it was able to be sold to a new family. 
Now, one of the things that that impressed upon me is I knew that no matter how bad that house looked, when they decided to purchase it because the show had started, I knew that at the end, we were going to have a new house. And all I was doing was watching it play out so that I could see what they had to go through to get to the end. Brothers and sisters, I'm not sure where you are in your life right now, but there are three things that you ought to know. One, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, the great restorer has already decided to purchase you. And because he's decided to purchase you, that means he's committed himself to the work of finishing the project in your life. Two, when he bought you, he went into the work of renovation after he removed the garbage of your sin through his death by forgiveness, by the blood he shed to wash those sins away. We, we call that process sanctification. And sometimes sanctification, things get ugly because when Jesus has a vision for your life and who you are, that means sometimes he's got to tear down walls. He's got to rip up old plumbing. He's got to take out old wiring because he wants to put new things in you. And sometimes when we're in the process of sanctification, it feels uncomfortable because things that we don't want to happen in our lives are happening. I just want you to remember the show is not over. And because the show is not over, he's still in the process of working it out, which leads me to the third and the final thing. And this was always true. At the end of the show, it's always going to end up new and better than what they had before. Brothers and sisters, I'm not sure what God is going to do, but at the end, when it's all said and done, guess what? You're going to be new and better than ever before. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. He said, for in, all, for in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Pastor Mike said it to you last week. He said, rejoice in Jesus. Adam may have messed the world up, but Jesus has fixed it. So give him the glory, the honor, and the praise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you for what Jesus has done. We thank you that the story didn't stay with Adam. Oh boy, we would be groaning today because we would have no hope. But Lord, we thank you that Jesus has come and through his one act that he has fixed the problems of sin and death. And we rejoice because Lord, there's coming a day when you're going to finish the work and you're going to present us as a testimony, as a trophy to your great glory and the work of Christ. And we will marvel and we will give you the honor. And like the elders in Revelation, if we have any rewards, we will throw them down before you and rejoice because we will know it was not us that did it, but you. Thank you that you took us who were old and decaying under the power of sin and death and kicked them out so that grace could reign in our lives. We give you the glory and the praise because you alone deserve it. Amen.